Well, church, it's my pleasure to ask you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. As uh, we are now uh, going to uh, week two of our, our what, 10-week study of thereabouts in 2 Thessalonians. I'm excited to be able to share with you what God has laid upon my heart through his word. Already, I think he's been working in our midst and our praise and his blessings upon us. And I trust he'll continue to do so as he has given us his truth in scripture. And so 2 Thessalonians this morning, we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, hear now the word of God. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are, afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Our Father, we ask now for help as we consider your word. Even as we've just read this text, we can see it contains heavy truths. And yet they are your truths. They are divine truths. And therefore worthy of our study and our consideration and even application into our lives. And so we come to you and ask for help in the midst of this passage, a special help that we need to see your holiness even to consider your judgment, and therefore to be thankful and rejoice that we have been spared from it by the grace of Christ through his shed blood. Help us to understand these truths well today, that you may be glorified in us, we ask in Christ's name, amen. In uh, J.R. Tolkien's uh, famous trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, many of you are familiar, I'm sure, with little Frodo, leaving his comfortable village to head off on a somewhat uncertain quest. Soon into his journey, he encounters a man named Strider, somewhat of a mysterious and troublesome man. It's only after a little while that Frodo and the readers, or the watchers, if you've seen the movies, discover that Strider is a good man. But not only a good man, he's actually the king. The king in disguise. Many recognize what Tolkien is doing here is he's giving us a Christ-like image, a a king who is in some sense hiding. Of course, Tolkien wouldn't be the first to pick up on that motif. We we have it in in Robin Hood when Richard the Lionhearted returns disguised as an abbot. Or we have it in Ivanhoe uh, when the king is uh, disguised as the mysterious black knight. And So we see this over again in in much of English uh, literature. Of course, and this didn't uh, originate with uh, our literature. It originated, I think, actually in Scripture. And we see this theme over and over again in the Bible. So you remember Abraham is visited by these three nomads who he entertains, even offers them dinner, only to discover that, uh, that one of them happens to be God himself. Or, or we, we learn about Jacob 
Abraham's grandson, who in the middle of the night is attacked by a man. They're in a fist fight until the, the dawn is rising. And it's only then as the light begins to break upon uh, over the horizon that Jacob realizes the man he is wrestling with is none other than God himself. Or we think perhaps even in the New Testament. Remember Simon, after a night of futile fishing, as reluctantly returns to his boat and the nets at the request of his rabbi, only then to have such an incredible catch in the instructions of uh, Jesus that the boat begins to sink under the weight of the fish, that he falls to his knees recognizing he is standing before none other than the Lord of heaven and earth. Or consider Sunday morning when Magdalene, bleary-eyed through her weeping, asked the gardener, where have you laid his body? And it's only when the gardener speaks her name that her sorrow melts in the radiance of her risen Lord. And what are the heartbroken pilgrims lumbering their way to Emmaus, joined by a mysterious traveler who who explains to them that the Messiah also must walk the path of suffering in order to reach glory. And it's once they sit down and eat dinner that they realize that this teacher was none other than King Jesus himself, leaving them in awe. You know, it kind of seems like God likes disguises, right? God hides himself, and it's only when the lesson's taught or the heart is encouraged or the rebuke is given that then the disguise is removed and the majesty is revealed, leaving, of course, his followers overwhelmed in awe at the presence of one so great. Of course, what, what, what disguise is like the humanity in which this eternal Son of God took. The creator becomes creation. And of course, this time, not simply to teach or amaze or rebuke. He could have done any of those things, remaining in his divine uh, form rather than taking on humanity. But he took on humanity, of course, in order to die for us. And, And yet, even in his humanity, though some could see, the countless could not. All they saw was a failed rabbi dying a cursed death upon a Roman cross. Well, Paul tells us that one day that veil will be removed. And all, whether they acknowledge Christ now or not, all one day will see Jesus for who he truly is. Notice what he says there in verse 7. He says, when, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, Revealed from heaven. We often speak of the, the second coming of Christ. Or sometimes uh, we refer to it as the return of Christ. The Bible does as well. It uses those terms. But you might be interested to note that pr- the, the, the predominant way in which the Bible refers to that event, it, re- it calls it the revealing of Christ, as Paul does here in uh, verse 7. The appearance of Christ is a Greek word you've heard before. Apocalypse. The apocalypse of Christ. The unveiling of Christ. And I think the idea that the Bible is communicating is that right now, Jesus reigns. Right now, he is glorified. But that reign, that authority, that glory, that majesty is hidden from the world. And we look around. I mean, it doesn't take, it's not hard, is it? Just look around. Turn on the news. And the world will seem like it's in chaos. Last time I checked, the world is not doing very well in obeying Jesus. Right? Have you seen that? We're all on the same page here. We're not doing so hot on that. 
And it almost looks like, well, is he reigning? Is, is there any authority? We don't see it. We don't recognize it in this world. Well, Paul tells us that one day his glory is going to be revealed. It's going to be apparent. It's going to be unveiled. And it will be evident to everyone on this day who Christ is. And there won't be a single person on the earth to say, oh, I wonder who that might be. Okay? We will all understand who it is when he comes in his great glory, when he is revealed as the sovereign ruling God that he is in this day of uncovering. Right? It's almost the imagery of a statue there stands in the city square and yet it's covered and none can appreciate its splendor for it is hidden from our eyes. I feel like that's the way in which we're, we're living right now. Christ is glorious. Christ is ruling. The world rejects that. Oftentimes his people forget that. And yet there is coming a day when the covering will be removed. The disguise will be thrown away. And his sovereign glory will be evident to us all. And it's to this that Paul now turns his attention in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, we're, we're, we just got through the introduction. And we're, he's already launching into, okay, you need to understand about the appearing of our Lord Jesus. We might ask, well, why is Paul talking about the, the appearing or the coming of Christ so early in this letter? I think the answer is found there in verse 4 when he says, we ought to give, uh, in fact, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith, and here it is, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So he says, he says to the church, we know about your suffering. You're suffering, aren't you? Just as countless Christians are suffering today. And of course, when, when we suffer, that raises a question, doesn't it? And if you've lived long enough, you have suffered, and you have asked this question. Why? Why is this happening and I wonder if the Thessalonians were asking this question, as so many have. Why, why suffering? Why persecution? Why affliction? Why doesn't God do something? I think that's the natural question. I think that's the question we are prone to ask, in particular when we witness injustice. I, I will never forget the day I walked through the slums in Accra, Ghana, and I saw children scurrying across the sewage in order to find something to eat in the trash heaps. Tens of thousands of and the question of my heart is, God, why? You've clearly asked that question, have you not, in the midst of suffering in your life or in the life of this world? Or we might even look more closely at home when the people of God are opposed, when they are ridiculed, when they are harassed, when they are imprisoned, when they are tortured, when they are killed. We want to know why. Why on July 11th, Armed Muslims in Pakistan broke into a Christian home demanding a man's 13-year-old daughter. When the father refused to give her to them, they beat him unconscious. We want to know why on July 12th, when the pastor of Antala Bible Church in Turkey, after finishing his sermon, received death threats from a visitor. We want to know why on July 19th, the pastor of Grace Covenant Church in Chantilly, Virginia, was stabbed with a knife by someone visiting his Bible study, sending him to the hospital. We want to know why. Why, you want, why, why are God's people suffering? Why does this injustice happen? Well, I think 1 Thessalonians 1 is Paul's attempt to get at the answer. In fact, we saw part of the answer last week. I don't know if you remember that they're suffering 
He's making them worthy of the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 5? He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. And so we considered last week that this suffering is purifying God's people. It is through suffering that suffering is the wind that God uses to blow away the chaff of sin within us. And so sometimes we are in hardship in the midst of, of, of difficulty, even affliction, in order that we might trust more fully in God and less on this world. And I think, as I suggested to you last week, that should change our view of suffering. It should change the view in which we endure these things. So not that we should ever seek suffering, but we should seek in suffering what God is trying to do in us, namely to make us more like Christ. We should be a good steward of the difficulties in which we encounter in order that we might be purified and made like Jesus. This, listen, suffering is not unusual for the Christian. So we read in Acts 14, for instance, through many tribulations. It's actually the word affliction that Paul uses a number of times here in chapter 1. Through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the road we all walk to heaven. It is a road of suffering. We need to prepare for it. So one answer to the question, why this suffering, is because God is doing a work of purification in you. But that may raise the objection. And I'm sure it has in many hearts. Okay, God, I see how you're using this in my life, but how can you let the wicked win? How can you let injustice continue? This, in fact, is the, if you want to study that more in depth, the whole book of Habakkuk is about that. God says, I'm going to use these wicked people to discipline you, and Habakkuk just wants to know, how can you do that? How can you let that injustice reign? Well, Paul is going to answer that question, and he's going to give us a twofold answer. So you might think of it this way. Why suffering? Well, one, God's doing something now. He's purifying you. And now Paul's going to answer, God is going to do something in the future. God is doing something, and God will do something. What will God do? We're told two things. Note verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So you see the two things that God promises to do. Number one, you see that verse seven, God's people on the day in which Christ is revealed will receive rest, will receive relief from all their suffering. So my suffering, brothers and sisters in Christ, be strengthened today. One day you shall be relieved of all the burdens in which you carry. Forever. Forever and ever and ever, never to be burdened by them again. Right? In fact, Paul will elaborate what that day He mentions it there in verse 7. He'll elaborate it in glorious detail in verse 10. And my hope that we shall next week consider that amazing truth. What will happen to the believer when Christ returns? But that's only part of Paul's answer as to what God will do. You notice, as I already saw, we already saw in verse 6, there's another thing that God will do for the non-believer. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In other words, though God is allowing the wicked their way in order to purify his people, the afflictors on that day will be afflicted. Every injustice, in other words, will be rectified by God's hand. And so God is going to bring two things when Christ returns, give rest to his people and retribution to his opponents. May I say simply in passing, just by way of footnote, if you read carefully, this retribution and rest Both occur on the same day when Christ returns. So those of you who are hoping 
for a rapture in order to deliver you out of some tribulation that might be coming, I think we'll be disappointed. Of course, we all debate this issue, and I would just challenge you to look at this passage. It seems to me these two groups are dealt with exactly on the same day, both Christian and non-Christian. And these verses, in my mind, in my estimation, no, allow no possibility for what some call a pre-tribulation rapture. If that, word, that phrase has, doesn't mean anything to you, that's probably best, okay? And so we're not going to deal with that. This is just a little debate we Christians like to have amongst one another, okay? But you see there are, what, what ultimately the, the truth that Paul's trying to get to is that there are two different destinies, aren't there? This is what we see here. When Christ returns, there are two different destinies. One, unending joy for God's people. Two, unending suffering for those who are not. The Bible refers to that suffering with the word hell. For instance, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who said that? Anyone know? That's Jesus. And I know we think of Jesus as meek and mild and sweet and tender and he's wearing a cardigan and slippers or whatever and Jesus is just, just a really kind of nice, compassionate guy and certainly is nice and he is compassionate. But he spoke more about hell than any other uh, contributor to our scripture. This is, this is what Jesus says. This is what Paul tells us. Verse 8, Jesus, when he returns, will return in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. So we think Jesus came the first time in order to spare people from this vengeance, to spare them from his the, the judgment. So we cherish, do we not? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, there are, two, there are two destinies, there are two options, aren't there? There is you know, what the Bible calls perishing or hell, or the Bible calls everlasting or eternal life. In fact, we read on in John 3, 18, whoever, listen very carefully, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What scripture teaches unequivocally is that this life is not our final destiny. That eternal life is coming for some and eternal perishing is coming for others. Those are the two options when Christ returns. Eternal joy in his kingdom or eternal destruction in suffering. That, that is going to happen for every single person who has ever lived upon this earth. In other words, your eternal destiny is determined by what you do with Jesus. And when I say eternal, I mean millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And on and on and on. And if that's true, and I would suggest to you that the Bible unequivocally teaches that, if that's true, there is nothing more important in your life than responding to Jesus' offer of mercy. Does that make sense? Nothing. I don't care what's important in your life right now. We're talking about eternity is at stake. So there is one thing of primary importance in this life, and it is getting right with God through faith in Christ. Now, we, of course, don't like to talk about hell, do we? This is somewhat uncomfortable for us. I, I certainly don't like preaching on hell. I'd rather avoid this topic, to be perfectly honest, to my perhaps shame, as I was confessing to my son this morning. Um, 
You know, it, this is one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible. Because I, I, if we're just preaching topical sermons, I would rarely say, hey, we're doing an eight-week study on God's vengeance. Invite your neighbors. Okay? Right? Just not, I'm just not going to do it. Too much of a coward. So I'm forced. Here's the next text. Deal with it. I'm forced. Here it is. But today, we don't talk about it much. In fact, some years ago, one of the princes, princesses of England was departing a worship service, and she asked her personal priest, is it true that there's a place called hell? He answered, our Lord and his apostles taught so, the creeds affirm so, and the church believes so. The princess replied, why then in God's name do you not tell us so? May, I, I don't want to be accused of anyone, and most importantly my God, for not telling you so. So I tell you so today, even though it brings uncomfortability into our lives. I think John Stott was right when he says, emotionally, I find the concept of hell intolerable. But he added, as a committed evangelical, my question must not, must be, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? And so I want to share with you God's word today. In fact, I, I, I want to go farther. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm not going to apologize for God today. Even if, he, even if God is, is uh, out of date, right, and not in touch with our modern sensibilities, I, I'm going to teach you his word. I'm going to do so unapologi unapologetically. I appreciate Francis Chan's sentiment. He said, like a nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing their drunken father, I have tried to hide God at times. He then adds, who do, you th who do I think I am? The truth is God is perfect and right in all that he does. And I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need nor want me to cover for him. There is nothing to be covered, everything about him, and all he does is perfect. And it's with that conviction that we talk about hell this morning. Five questions. When, why, who, what, and so what? So some of those points will be brief, others will be less so. So be prepared, please. When will this happen? Well, we, we see in verse 7, do we not? We're told when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So people will be sent into hell when Christ returns. Note three prepositional phrases that are used to describe this appearing. He is going to appear from heaven. Okay. He, he's going to appear by coming from uh, heaven down to earth. This will be an event that Jesus says that will be unmistakable. It will be evident to everyone upon this world. Secondly, he will come with his mighty angels. And when you think about angels, please do not think of, uh, you know, plump uh, babies in diapers. Okay, little cute little angels. These are warriors. These are mighty angels, we're told. One pastor explains the picture here is, not, is one of an irresistible army the Lord of the universe returning from a journey to settle accounts with the tenants of his earth. And then thirdly, we're told he comes in flaming fire. Now, we're not quite sure what's on fire. It almost sounds like he is. Like the, the robe that he wears is, is fire. Perhaps this is symbolic of his unapproachable purity. Like when God descended on Mount Sinai and we read that it was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Or as Isaiah 66 will tell us, the Lord will come in fire 
his chariots like whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke in flames of fire. I tell you, it will be a terrifying day for many. This coming of Christ, there'll be no meek baby crying in a manger while the cow lows and the star shines brightly. We read elsewhere in scripture that the stars will be falling out of the sky even. Jesus who wept over the unbelief of Jerusalem and gave his life so that sinners might receive mercy and escape his judgment will come a second time to make war, the Bible tells us, on everyone who has refused his blood offered mercy. It will be a day of fear and dread when God takes humanity that stands in rebellion to him and places them before him and they will receive his vengeance. As Paul tells us, as we consider point number two, why? Why is he coming like this? Well, we see in verse eight, do we not, that he is coming to inflict vengeance. When we read vengeance, that sounds vindicative. It sounds like God's coming to settle old scores. I don't think that's what we're referring to here. I think this is biblical justice. This is a judicial punishment. So we read in verse 9, for instance, they will suffer the punishment, right? Or we've already seen in verse 6 how this is justice. Since indeed God considers it just, right? There's a term of justice. God considers it right uh, that uh, he will afflict those who have afflicted his children. So those who persecute Christians in particular will receive justice from God. Let's make no mistake, it's a terrible evil to break into a man's home and demand his 13-year-old daughter. And it is more evil to then beat that man when he tries to protect her. It is a terrible thing. It's an evil thing when pastors are arrested in China or, or pastors are threatened in Turkey or homes are burned in India. And God is saying they will not get away with it. All who torment and torture and taunt his people will face judgment. So these Thessalonian believers who are in the midst of great suffering and all other suffering Christians should be encouraged by what Paul is saying, that justice will be done. In fact, he tells us, thirdly, who this justice will come upon. Well, for whom? Well, we've already seen in verse 6, it comes particularly on those who afflict Christians. Right? But it's expanded in verse 8. You see that? When Christ returns in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So he says, do not know God. He's not saying they have no knowledge of God. But that rather, as scripture teaches us elsewhere, they suppress that knowledge of God in their own wickedness. Romans chapter 1 uh, explains this, that they did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God. And then he goes on and gives another example on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. This is an example of those who have heard the gospel as you have already this morning considering the crucified and risen Lord and his offer of mercy to you. So there are many who hear that gospel and, and they hear the summons of the king of heaven and earth and yet reject him. That Jesus dies and endures hell for sinners and yet people hear that and they say, no thank you. And that rejection of the gospel is a great insult to Christ. It's despising his sacrifice. It's offensive to God. And so judgment will come upon those. In fact, you notice that interesting phrase, isn't it? Those who do not obey the gospel. 
And we think of the gospel as something to believe. And of course it is. And it's primarily that, something to believe. But you also see it's more than something to believe. It is something to be, to obey. This is why Jesus, when he, his very first sermon he preached, what did he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. What should we do therefore? Repent and believe. This is why the Christian gospel must always not simply call for belief, but call for repentance as well. In other words, if you think all Christianity is, is you pray a prayer when the pastor asks you to do, and you're done and off you go you're okay for the rest of your life i'm afraid you're mistaken that's a that's a truncated understanding of the christian truth we must have a life that demonstrates that we have actually submitted ourselves to king jesus that he indeed is our lord he is our liege and we delight to follow him and to obey him and there are many who hear that kingly summons and say no no i will not come to this king and so we see according to scripture they will face destruction which leads us to point number four, the what of this judgment. It's detailed there in verse nine, isn't it? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. So let's, let's get away from the silly notions that hell is some you know, cocktail party by candlelight, some subterranean sports bar that you'll hang out with your friends forever. Scripture speaks of it as destruction. And not just destruction, but an eternal destruction, an inescapable destruction. No one will ever leave. It is final. It lasts forever and ever and ever and ever. It, it never ends. There is no relief for those who are in it. There is no rest. Once you're in hell, it will be too late to cry out. It will be too late to receive mercy. It will be too late to believe. So if you're here as a non-Christian or if you're watching online as a non-Christian, I say with all the tenderness I can in my heart as I preach, I think a very ter- troubling reality. Will you not come to faith in Christ? That you might escape his just judgment upon you. This, by the way, is not simply Paul. Jesus himself will say in Mark chapter 9, this is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. In Revelation 14, we read the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever and ever, and there is no rest day and night. Many Christians ask, well, what do we do with these descriptions of hell? You know, the worm and the, the lake of fire and the outer darkness and all the rest. Is the Bible speaking literally, or are these, is this symbolism? And there has been a Christian debate for 2,000 years on those issues. My great hero, Charles Spurgeon, takes all these descriptions of hell literally. He, he, in fact, he would say, now do not begin telling me that it is metaphorical fire. Who cares for that? If a man were to threaten to give me a metaphorical blow on the head, he would be welcome to give me as many as he pleased. Right? Well, not to disagree with my great hero, I'm not convinced. In fact, I, I, I read the descriptions of heaven and I wonder, are the streets really going to be paved with gold? Or is that symbolism? Are, there really, are the gates to the city really going to be one giant pearl? Or is that a way of describing heavenly realities that is difficult for us to even comprehend? In fact, I wonder if the great challenge in describing both heaven and hell uh, to us is that our only reference point is this life. And so it's very difficult to perhaps appreciate the splendor of heaven or the horrors of hell. 
Perhaps a, a, an example would be if you, if you went to a, a remote jungle somewhere uh, on a Pacific island to a preliterate people and you tried to explain to them what an iPhone is. How would you do so? You would undoubtedly have to use symbolism and metaphor and, 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 and likenesses. You would do your best to take things in their experience and kind of uh, uh, attach it to that. But you wouldn't get very close, would you? I wonder if that's what kind of uh, what, we're, what we see here, that these are metaphors, that these are symbolisms, as many uh, Christian theologians have uh, thought. And, and in case you think, well, okay, if it's not actually really a lake of fire, then maybe it's not so bad. No, the, the, the symbols and the metaphor are used to describe how awful the reality is. So, in, in, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul talks the Thessalonians and says, you, you are like the crown on my head. Now, do they read that and say, well, we must not be very important to him because he's using a symbol and, and obviously he doesn't care for us. No, Paul's saying, I, I'm thinking of something precious and wonderful and, and using that as a, as a metaphor to describe how I think about you. And so we, we see that I think scripture is perhaps using the, these uh, uh, imagery as a metaphorical way to describe the, the horrors of hell. I don't think, however, that, that literally you're in a lake that's burning forever. I don't think that it is uh, God's, God's pouring coals on their head forever or poking them with pitchforks forever. I don't think that's what he's speaking of. In fact, I think Paul's very helpful. You want to know what the nature of hell is like? I think Paul perhaps gives us one of the most clear uh, descriptions of it there in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Here it is, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So we'll see in verse 10 next week, God willing, that heaven is the presence of God. And, and there in verse 9, we see hell is the absence of God, away from God. That's what hell's going to be like, being cast away, being banished. And so as one pastor says, imagine two men. One is a single man, the other is a married man with three children, both living in a dictatorship. One night, the secret police barge into their house, and they take away both men independently of each other, and they're going to take them to a terrible a labor camp where they will spend the rest of their days in utter misery and difficulty. Now, both men experience misery, but they experience it differently. The first man, the single man, experienced the misery of recognizing that his days will be filled with suffering until he dies. But the second man, the, the married man and the child with, the, uh, and with, with children, well, yeah, he's not looking forward to the pain, but it seems to me that his primary misery is the overwhelming reality he'll never see his family again, that he's lost them. You see, to the Christian, the prospect of being taken away from Jesus forever is unimaginable. It's terrifying. Now, others might object, well, those who don't love God, they could care less about being taken away from God. What do they care? Right? Being absent from God is no misery for them. I'm not so sure. In fact, I would suggest to you that all people, whether we know it or not, are living off of God's presence. Right? Even the song we sing, did you note that hymn? One of my favorites. Um, Fount of blessings. That God is the fount of all blessings, whether people realize it or not. But one has likened like God to the sun. And, and if God is the sun, whether you acknowledge the sun or not, whether you think there's a sun or not, whether you enjoy the sun or not, you are living off the presence of the sun. Whether you are lying in the meadow in the rays of the sun or warming your body, filling you with delight, or you're living in a cave and you've never seen the sun, don't even know about the sun, don't even believe there is a sun, nevertheless, you too are living off the sun. We are all living off the sun. You take away the sun, we all perish. We all die. We all freeze to death. See, God is, is 
more than the source of life, he is the source of love. He is the source of joy. He is the source of beauty and, and, and laughter and peace. Right? You ever feel awe and a sunset? You ever find delight in a meal? You ever feel the warmth of an embrace of a loved one? You ever moved by music or the laughter of your children? All of that is a reflection of God. Everything that is good, everything that brings pleasure to us is from God's hand. And therefore, hell is a torment because everything that's beautiful and joyful and loving is taken away because they're cast away from God himself. And for eternity, there will be no joy. For eternity, there will be no love. They won't love. They, they won't be loved. They won't even want to be loved. All of that is cast off. A.W. Pink says they'll be forever separated from the fount of all goodness. I don't think it'll be torture forever. They're banished. They're sent away. What does Jesus say uh, to those who will on this day not receive his mercy? Depart from me. Away. Go away from my presence. You see, hell is the reverse of that great priestly blessing. The Lord curse you. The Lord reject you. The Lord darken his face to you and withhold all grace. The Lord turn away his countenance and leave you in despair. And if the hell is this, as Paul tells us, this banishment from God, well, you see the justice of it then, don't you? God's just giving them what they want. You don't want me? I've offered you mercy over and over again. You say, no, 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 okay. Then go away. You see, our sin separates us from God, doesn't it? Well, it makes sense that hell is just simply the final and complete separation, a soul that is fully given into sin. And Paul already uh, tells us in Romans 1 that God is already doing this in some people's life. In wrath, we read, he's giving them over to their desires. And so C.S. Lewis would write, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All, he says, includes all that are in hell, choose it. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. I think what we're learning is that don't don't think of of hell as as these poor souls crying out for mercy for eternity. And God says, oh, it's too late. No, no mercy for you. No, they, they, they hate the Lord and will continue to hate God forever. In fact, their rebellion will only grow. As day by day passes, they will go farther and farther from God. Hell, hell is miserable, and yet no one wants to leave because the option is God. They will have none of it. And so they're cut off. This is what Paul tells us. Just as Christ was. If we understand hell this way, to be banished from God, I think it helps us understand what Jesus was doing on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and during God's judgment on us, God wasn't raining fire on Jesus, right? He wasn't, he wasn't putting his feet in acid or all the rest. What did he do? Well, just listen to the words of Jesus. I am forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, Jesus was banished from the presence of God. He was cast off. He was turned away. Jesus, in fact, is the only person ever who has ever lived, who ever will live, who truly wanted God. And God said, no. It's the only person that will ever happen to. Everyone else has turned their back upon God. God turned his back on Jesus. Jesus said, God, I want you, I need you. God said, no. The sun went out, and Jesus endured hell for us. And so the cross shows us that God in love is willing to bear justice for you. He now, even even this morning, by his grace, offers you mercy. If you will not receive it, then 
you will receive his judgment. So what then? Lastly, what, what implication is this for us? Well, I think it's obvious. In fact, I've been sharing, sharing it from the very beginning. The obvious application would be for all of us to believe in Christ. And I remind you of John 3.16 once again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I exhort you, my non-Christian friend, to repent of your self-rule and turn yourself over to Christ and to receive his mercy, why he would give it to you. Do not get distracted by all the temporary realities in our life. I know there's a pandemic raging and it seems very important, and it is in many ways, isn't it? And I know we have an election coming up and we got job issues and GDP and family things and projects and hobbies and stock markets and all sorts of things to occupy our attention. Don't you understand, eternity is at stake. Eternal joy or eternal misery is at stake. And so I ask and every single person under the sound of my voice, are you ready for that day? He loves you and he gives you mercy today if you would receive it. In fact, he'll give it to anyone. You notice the man who writes this is Paul himself, who, who, who certainly was afflicted for the gospel, but only after he brought affliction upon others. He was the persecutor. He was the afflictor. Paul was on his way literally to kill Christians when God showed up with mercy through Jesus. And, 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 he, and now he freely offers that mercy, and Paul proclaims that mercy to all who would receive it. That's, that's before us. And the first point of application, the first so what, is to believe. That is what God calls us to. The second, so what, would be for us to witness. I think that's also obvious, is it not, Christian? Because we long for people to, to come to know Christ and escape this judgment. And so therefore, we should speak of our God faithfully. We should speak about eternal truths. In our conversations, we need to learn to move beyond the weather, move beyond the sports, move beyond the family, and all these things are fine to talk about and all very interesting, I'm sure. But what about eternal truths in our conversation? Clearly, you're going to talk with clients and coworkers and neighbors and all the rest of you about, well, this pandemic, isn't this the worst? Is that not an opportunity for you to just kind of redirect the conversation and you say, I'm just so thankful that I know this life is not the only life I get to live? Or we think about the election, and we say, well, who you got? You got like this guy, you like that guy, you like the, uh, the, the rapper guy or whatever he is, you know, who, who are you going for on this election? And is that an opportunity to say, well, whoever, whoever gets elected, I'm, I'm just thankful that my king reigns from heaven. I mean, do you not have opportunities to, to, to kind of get out of the mundane? If these things are true, to begin to drop hints and let people know that you believe in God and his work. Third, so what? And I, I, I think here is when the relevance hits home for you, Christian. You say, well, why are we talking about hell? I'm not going there. I'm saved. Well, I, I think it's incredibly relevant for you because I think the truth about this, this judgment that is coming will, if you allow it, give you incredible freedom to forgive others when they sin against you. Right? Knowing that God is judge will give you incredible power to absorb wrongs, and to forgive. Right, so when you're sinned against, what do you do? What do you do typically when you're sinned against? Right, if you're anything like me, you fight back. Right? What do you do when you get the nasty email? 
Well, you want to respond. You might not. Sometimes we do. But you want to respond with a nasty email of your own. Anyone get a nasty email and they read it and say, well, that will be taken care of on the day in which Christ returns. I think I'll go on with my day. I'll be vindicated. I'll put that in the hands of Jesus. No. What we do is we run to the judgment seat. Say, I will render a verdict here. I will sit in this throne and I will judge. And we may do it in action, but how often do we do it just in our fantasy life as we imagine all sorts of terrible things that should happen to the people who sin against us? Right. Oh, that guy cut me off. I, you know, I hope he hits a tree or whatever. Okay? And we, 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 maybe you're, see, you see how perverse I am? Why did that come to my mind? Right? But this is what we do. We, we root for it. I hope they get what's coming to them. We pull for it. You know what that does? That begins to distort you. That begins to corrupt you. And you become bitter and angry and cranky. And you're constantly offended. Right? You're so easily offended. Right? Some people can't get past the wrongs that have done to them. And they're constantly fixated on it. And the reason is, is we desire justice. Desiring justice is, is good. We all have this moral compass within us, right? We all have an internal impulse for justice. You want to see this lived out in front of you. Watch someone take a toy away from a toddler. Okay? And they, toddlers have a very keen sense of justice. Right? And they will, they will express that when they think they are wrong. We all have that sense of justice within us, which is one of the uh, thousand reasons that the evolutionary mindset is totally bunk. It has no descriptive power to actually explain the, the life in which we uh, live and exist. My dogs feel no desire for justice, right? And yet you do, and I do. Why? Because we're not simply complex atoms or evolved apes. We are people made in the very image of the creator. And our toddlers get this. They sense justice just like us. And yet their justice just like ours is extremely crooked. Right? Because we want justice when the wrong is done against us. But not so much when the wrong is done by us. Is that true? I tell you, God's justice is perfect. Leave it to him. Paul would write in Romans 12, verse 19, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Their sin against us doesn't mean they now belong into our hands to do as we please. They belong to God, which I think is good news. Because the second coming of Jesus to judge is the antidote. That's the antidote you're looking for your lack of forgiveness. God will settle accounts. You don't have to carry it. In fact, God will do it perfectly. You think you know what people deserve. You don't know. You don't have all the facts. You downplay your role, you upplay their wickedness, you, you, you don't know what's going on in their life, your hurt blinds you, you would not be a very good judge. And so let God have it, let him judge it, and let him do what he will do, and he will do so perfectly. So stay off the throne. Instead, be free. You don't have to judge. Christ will. Be free to love. Be free to forgive. Don't you want to be free? 
of all that. The second coming of Christ in judgment means you can never be offended again. What a great truth that is. Well, lastly, let me say, and briefly, the fourth point of application, the fourth so what, I hope is clear to those who belong to Christ, is that we should rejoice. Can we rejoice in what we have been saved from? Let the reality of hell cause you to marvel at your salvation. If you're about to pick up something hot and you don't know it's hot and I know it's hot and I come around and I slap your hand out of the way, you say, what are you doing? I say, that's white hot, you're gonna get a nasty burn. You'll be very thankful, thank you. I got saved from a burn, thank you, Stephen, for doing that. If you're about to get hit by a bus and I push you out of the way and save your life, not from a burn, but from a nasty death, how much more thankful would you be? Friends, Christians, do you understand at one time in your life, you stood at the gaping mouth of hell itself, and you have been saved. You say, never shall you face this judgment, though you deserved it. Christ Christless eternity was my destiny. That's where I was headed, and I deserved it. And yet Christ has saved me, and we should rejoice as the prophet Zephaniah tells us we should, my, just a couple hours ago, my wife sent me this text from, uh, from Zephaniah chapter 3, and we'll close with these verses. Listen very carefully as we apply the reality of hell to the motivation to praise God. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Why? Listen. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This is exactly what Paul is saying. Christ will clear away our enemies, and he will clear away his judgment. You, therefore, rejoice and exult with all your heart. I bring you good news today, Christian. You have been saved from hell by a good and gracious God. Let his praises ring. Our Father in heaven, we feel no pride when we consider these truths. We look down upon no one in arrogance for we know that this was our destiny and it is only by the blood-bought grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that we have been saved. May these truths be powerful in our lives. May it conjure forth, even as your scripture said, the prophet long ago, that we would rejoice and exult with all our heart, that we would indeed sing aloud at all that you have saved us from. And as we leave this place and undoubtedly are sinned against, spouse and children and parents and neighbors and all the rest, May we leave that in your hands and therefore experience the great Christian freedom of forgiveness. And as we walk in this forgiveness, will you help us to proclaim it and offer it to others that they might know the forgiveness that is found in Christ? In fact, we especially pray for those who perhaps might be here today or those watching in our online service that if they do not know Christ, 
they this very moment, even while I pray, would bow their knee and they would yield their life to Jesus that they might receive his free mercy upon them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you.